This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com Major funding for this Tanya class is provided by the Mettel Corporation. Additional funding is provided by Tanya students like you. Lessons in Tanya The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg Welcome to our, uh, to our last class in this series. If you live long enough, well, we started a class 14 years ago, our beards were black, but uh, Baruch Hashem. So this is literally the last uh, part of the fifth part of the Tanya. You know, we made a seum two weeks ago, Yitas Kislev, at KJ, but we'll elaborate a little more, and today we're going to finish inside, like we learn word for word, line by line from the Alter Rebbe. On the bottom of page 397. Moreover, since due to the frailty of our times, not everyone is capable of fasting as he ought, in the Gera of Keshuva, the Alter Rebbe cites the classical works of Musar, as to the number of fasts prescribed for each major sin, so that a penitent will be able to render himself as acceptable to Hashem after his repentance as he was before sin. So there he explained that the idea of a fast is even if a person's sin is forgiven, but the relationship is no longer the same. The trust is gone. Let's say you sinned to your friend, and even though your friend had forgiven you, so he will no longer charge you in a court of law, but the relationship is no longer the same. You want to restore the relationship the way it once was, so therefore we fast. And the fast is a substitute of the, of the, uh, of the sacrifice that's brought after the sin offering. After you bring a sin offering, then you bring a burnt offering, which is to please Hashem, to restore the friendship, to restore the relationship. And that's why you have all these prescribed fasts. But today we are not allowed to fast. We don't have the strength to fast. And it's just going to weaken us. So instead, continue. The council often follows the declaration of our sages of blessed memory. Whoever observes Shabbat according to his law is forgiven all his sins. The rabbis say even if a person sinned, the ultimate sin, the sin of idolatry, all your sins are forgiven. If you keep Shabbat properly, all your sins are forgiven. The term according to its law is used advisedly, for the Shabbat cannot be properly observed without a knowledge of its law. It is therefore incumbent upon every individual to commit to the great law of Shabbat. The term great law echoes the expression in the Gemara regarding checking one's clothes before sundown on Friday in order not to transgress a prohibition later. The laws of Shabbos thus not only inform us of what is prohibited, but also of how to avoid transgression. So to keep Shabbat, it's not enough to know everything that's prohibited, but you also have to be careful to avoid any situation that may lead you to violate Shabbat. 
you walk around with something, while you're carrying something on Shabbat that you're completely unaware of, it's not a problem. Because Shabbat, only creative work is prohibited. But what if you walk on Shabbat and suddenly you feel your pockets and you realize you're carrying something? Now you have a problem. You're walking in the street in a public domain and you're carrying. What do you do? Do you go? Do you? If you study the laws of Shabbat, you'll know exactly what you need to do. But there are ways of, of uh, avoiding the problem in the first place, and that is before Shabbat, you check your pockets. Before you go to synagogue on Shabbat, before the Shabbat enters, make sure your pockets are empty. So there's a lot of awareness and a lot of knowledge that goes into preparing for Shabbat. So in order, whoever keeps Shabbat properly, appropriately, and knows and studies all the laws in depth, and then all your sins are forgiven. Also, be most careful on Shabbat and not to indulge in idle chatter heaven forbid. So here he says, you should not indulge in any idle chatter. Rabbinically, the rabbis prohibited about anything you're not allowed to do on Shabbat, you're not allowed to discuss on Shabbat. But in general, the rabbi said that a person should be careful not to speak excessively, idle chatter. Here the Alter Rebbe is saying that you should be very careful not to speak any idle chatter at all. And now he's going to explain why. Why not? Technically, it's not prohibited. So why is the Alter Rebbe saying you should be careful, very careful, not to speak any idle chatter on Shabbat? For, as is known to the initiates in the mystical wisdom of Kabbalah, all the mitzvot compromise an internal and external aspect, the spirituality of the mitzvah, and the physical act which it requires. The externality of the mitzvot of Shabbat is the cessation of physical activity, just as Hashem sees making the physical heaven and earth. The internal dimension of Shabbat is one's intention in the Shabbat prayers and during one's Torah study to cleave to the one God. As it's written, it is Shabbat for the Lord your God. Underlying the succession of labor of Shabbat is the concept of elevation. When a person rests from his labor at any time, the energy that he invested in it rises and returns to the source within the soul. So too the cessation of labor and resting on Shabbat means that the soul, which during the week had been immersed in mundane activities, is uplifted to the Lord your God. So the idea of Shabbat, it's not just a day for R&R, rest and relaxation. The Jews were the first one to come up with the concept of a day of rest. Actually, we were the laughing stack of the world. The Romans used to ridicule the Jews. What a foolish nation. Entire nation stops working, takes a day off from work, from labor. Now everyone got around and realized that if you want your, labor, your laborers to be productive, it's worthwhile to give them a day, a day of rest. But that's not what Shabbat is. Shabbat is not a day of, to vegetate, just to relax, to prepare you to go back to the real world. Shabbat is the highlight of the week. It's a Shabbos Hashem. It's a Shabbos Hashem. It's the, the, the soul of the week. We look forward to Shabbat all week long. It's the only day of the week that has a Hebrew name. There's no Hebrew name for Sunday or Monday or Tuesday. First week, day of Shabbat. Shabbat is a day, Shabbos Hashem. It's a day for Hashem. 
So it's a day when a Jew gives his ego a rest. That's the deeper meaning, the inner meaning of Shabbat. It's not just, uh, it's, a, a, it's something that we experience. It's something that we live and experience. It's very, very personal and, and uplifting and inspiring. On Shabbat, we are uplifted. The whole world is uplifted. We connect with our neshama. We become centered and focused. So this is the inner way we keep Shabbat. So it's not just paying lip service. You make Kiddush, Friday night, you say, you remember the Shabbat, God created the world on the sixth day and the seventh day he rested. It's, it's a day of a spiritual day, a day that we focus on our soul and our neshama and our... It's a day that, that's uplifting. So that's the inner meaning of Shabbat. We dedicate it to Torah, to study Torah, and to connect with Hashem. This internal level of the mitzvah of Shabbat is the element of remembering. The Shabbat comprises two elements, remembering, Sahar, and observing, Shemar, reflecting the two commandments, quote, remember the Shabbat day to sanctify it, unquote, and quote, observe the Shabbat day to sanctify it, unquote. Elevating the soul of a Shabbat through proper intent, Kavana, during prayer and Torah study is an act of remembering. So this is the fulfillment of the mitzvah of Zohar, which is a positive commandment, to commemorate the Shabbat, to remember the Shabbat. And there's the external way to commemorate the Shabbat, and there's the internal way. The external way is by mentioning the Shabbat, and the internal way is by, sanctify, by sanctifying the Shabbat, internally sanctifying the Shabbat, elevating yourself, connecting. This is the internal way we keep Shabbat. And now we come to the other mitzvah, Shammar. <laughs> the element of observing, refraining from speech about material affairs, just as God sees from the ten utterances through which the physical of heaven and earth were created. The external aspect of observing is refraining from active labor, the internal aspect of observing is refraining and resting from speech about material affairs. For one opposite the other, speaking about material affairs on Shabbat is the inverse of the rest and elevation that a Jew secures on Shabbat with prayer and Torah Etc. So you just read the last words of the Tanya. And here he interprets, this is different ways of interpreting. This opposite the other. And this paralleling the other. Usually, Zelumazem means this opposite the other. Like being against, opposed. This is not being opposed, it's parallel. So there's three ways of interpreting it. You just read that it means that just like you remember the Shabbat, there's remembering it externally, commemorating, paying lip service, and then there's the internal uh, remembering of Shabbat, celebrating Shabbat, sanctifying Shabbat, so too, in the prohibition against doing work, you have the external way of keeping Shabbat, don't do work on Shabbat, but then there is the internal way of keeping Shabbat, don't even speak about anything mundane on Shabbat. So just like the internal way of remembering is, by dedicating it exclusively to Torah and prayer, so too, you refrain 
the internal way of keeping Shabbat is not only by not doing work on Shabbat, but by refraining from speaking anything mundane on Shabbat. Your speech should be completely dedicated only to words of Torah and words of prayer. So you should totally refrain from speaking anything. So that's the parallel. Just like you celebrate Shabbat internally by dedicating that day to prayer and connecting with Hashem, so too, how do you protect Shabbat? The prohibition of Shabbat is by not sullying it with any mundane talk. Don't use your mouth on Shabbat to speak about anything mundane. That's one explanation. One parallel the other. Another explanation is one parallel the other. That just like within commemorating Shabbat, which is about the prohibitions, the things you're not allowed to do on Shabbat, or just like you're not allowed to do any creative work on Shabbat, so too you're not allowed to speak. You shouldn't speak of anything mundane on Shabbat. So again, it's parallel. Just like there's a total ban on any creative work on Shabbat, so too there should be a total ban on speaking about anything mundane on Shabbat. But the Rebbe says that there's, uh, he gives a third explanation, which is a much deeper, much more profound explanation. That when he says this parallels the other, he's referring to Hashem. That a Jew can parallel Hashem. Just like Hashem stops speaking on Shabbat, so too we should stop speaking on Shabbat. And just we'll just very quickly reiterate we, the theme that we made in Yitzhak Kisli, but we'll elaborate a lot more. We didn't really have a chance to really get into it then. Uh, this is all based on a Talmud. The Talmud and tractate Shabbat, the Jerusalem Talmud, the 15th chapter, the third halacha. Omar Abavur, Abavur says, it says in the Torah, Shabbat la Hashem. It's a Shabbos to Hashem, meaning just like Hashem rested on Shabbat, what do you mean Hashem rested on Shabbat? How did God create the world? He spoke. And on Shabbat, he stopped speaking about creation. So too, a Jew should also stop speaking about work on Shabbat. That although biblically, all that's prohibited is actual work, there's no biblical prohibition against speaking about work on Shabbat. But the rabbi said, based on this verse in the Torah, that we should also rest, just like Hashem rested, the same way Hashem rested, Hashem rested from speaking. So we should also rest from, speak, uh, from speech, so rabbinically it's prohibited to speak. Anything you're not allowed to do on Shabbat, like business, you're not allowed to speak about on Shabbat. And then the Talmud goes on and tells a story. There was a chassid who was taking a walk in his vineyard on Shabbat, and he noticed that his uh, fence was breached. It was a breach in his fence. He started thinking, well, I better fix this fence. After, right after Shabbat, I'm going to fix the fence. But then he said, wait a minute. Not only did Hashem stop speaking on Shabbat, stop speaking about creative work, Hashem also stopped thinking about creative work on Shabbat. Now what happens if, God forbid, a person does work on Shabbat? You went ahead and cooked something on Shabbat. So the halacha is that that person who violated Shabbat is not allowed to benefit from that work ever. He, even after Shabbat, he can't touch that food. So he said, well, I violated Shabbat. I thought about work on Shabbat. Hashem rests. Didn't think about work on Shabbat. I went ahead and thought about work on Shabbat. So I'm never ever going to fix this breach in this fence. I'm going to leave it open. My vineyard I'm going to leave open for the rest of my life. 
he was going way beyond the letter of the law. Because rabbinically, there's no prohibition against thinking about work on Shabbat. You're not allowed to speak about work on Shabbat, and you shouldn't speak excessively about mundane things, but there's no prohibition against thinking about work on Shabbat. It's absolutely permitted, halachically. But he was a chassid. He went beyond the letter of the law. And he decided he's never going to, he violated Shabbat in a very subtle way because he wants to emulate Hashem, just like Hashem doesn't think in Shabbat, he also doesn't want to think in Shabbat. And he decided the rest, he's never going to fix the breach and a miracle happened. There was a tree next to the fence from the Caper Bush family and a branch extended from the tree covered up the breach. In other words, Hashem took care of him. And the fruits from this tree was enough to feed him and his family for the rest of his life. He lived comfortably for the rest of his life. This was an obvious reward for his piety. So what does the Talmud tell us? That there's three levels of keeping Shabbat. There is the biblical level of keeping Shabbat, which the Torah prohibits us from doing any work. Then you have the rabbinic level of keeping Shabbat. You're not allowed to speak about any work on Shabbat and not speak excessively about anything mundane on Shabbat. And then you have the Hasidic way, the pious way, going way beyond the letter of law, you're not allowed to even think of Shabbat. Why the difference? If Torah says that God rested, God stopped speaking. So why is it biblically permitted to speak about work on Shabbat? God didn't speak about work on Shabbat. And the obvious answer is, because we can't compare to God. God speaks and He creates. We speak and nothing happens. The Torah says, Hashem stopped creating work on Shabbat, so we have to stop creating. But nevertheless, Hashem stopped speaking. So the rabbi said that in addition to the biblical prohibition of actually doing work on Shabbat, we also should stop speaking about work on Shabbat. But thought is not a problem. Rabbinically, halachically, a person could think about work on Shabbat, no problem whatsoever. Why? God stopped thinking about work on Shabbat. But the answer is because speech has some parallel, has some similarity to Hashem's speech. Human speech has some similarity to Hashem's speech. Because we speak, speech is also a physical act. You move your lips, right? The boss says something and hopefully something gets done. So it leads to action. There's some connection. Versus thought, human thought, there's no parallel, no connection, no reflection of Hashem's thought. As we said in the Torah that we read today, from Isaiah chapter 55, as God says, My thoughts are not like your thoughts. Hashem doesn't say my speech is not like your speech, because there's some parallel. But Hashem's thoughts, when God thinks, things happen. When we think, surely nothing happens. No one even knows what we think. So since there's no relationship, there's no reflection, no connection, therefore the rabbis say it's permitted to think about work on Shabbat. Versus speech, it's rabbinically prohibited. And we were discussing why this is the very end of the Tanya. So this is how the Alter Rebbe finishes the Tanya. The Tanya was written for the Benini. The Benini is the average Jew. The Jew has to struggle with negativity who has to wrestle constantly, daily, till 120 years, till your last breath. It's a never-ending struggle. You have to struggle with your ego and struggle with your natural soul inclinations. It's, it's a never-ending struggle to do the right thing. 
And yet, how does the Alter Rebbe finish? The whole Tanya ends with this idea of one parallel the other, which is like the highest level. We know that the Alter Rebbe himself lived in this world, he was parallel to Hashem. He was like parallel to godliness. Being in this world, whatever was happening in the divine realms, he reflected in his life, perfectly reflected everything that was happening in the divine realm. For example, the Kabbalah explains, describes, that Friday, right before Shabbat, the whole world is like asleep. Friday night, Shabbat, the world is like an awakening. Before Shabbat, the whole world, like the end of the week, the world is exhausted. And that's why you have a day of rest. So the whole world is asleep. The Alter Rebbe would sit all day in Talus and Tefillin. In the times of the Talmud, that was the norm. In the later generations, no one, hardly anyone sat with the Talus and Tefillin. Only the holiest Jews would sit all day in the Talus and Tefillin. Biblically, the idea of tefillin is you should sit all day with your tefillin. The Alter Rebbe would sit all day with his tefillin, talus and tefillin. He studied Torah 18 hours a day, and he would sit all day, not at night. At night you have to take off your tefillin. Friday, right before Shabbat, the Alter Rebbe would like, very briefly, would like fall asleep. Now, no one in this room would go to sleep in tefillin. Because to sleep in tefillin is very problematic. You have to be aware. When you're wearing tefillin, your mind has to be aware and focused on the tefillin. And Alter Rebbe would fall asleep. But because the whole universe was asleep, at the moment that the whole universe was asleep, Alter Rebbe fell asleep. It wasn't an act. It was, he was a reflection. In this world, he was a reflection. He was tuned in, and he was a reflection of what was going on on the divine level, in the divine realms, in the world of Atzilut, in the divine realm. And Alter Rebbe finishes this Tanya with Zelu Mazeh, that the rabbis are basically saying that every Jew could reach this level where we become parallel to Hashem. Why don't we speak on Shabbat? Why aren't we allowed to speak on Shabbat? Because Hashem doesn't speak on Shabbat. Even though you can't compare our speech to God's speech. But nevertheless, a Jew in this world has to be parallel, a reflection of Hashem. That it's not just that God creates the world and and he stops working on Shabbat, and therefore we also stop working on Shabbat. But a Jew is so in tune with Hashem, that when Hashem stops speaking, we also stop speaking. To the extent, as the Rebbe says, you don't speak any mundane things on Shabbat. Not only, things, not only you don't speak about work, which is rabbinically prohibited, but as he says, you shouldn't speak. You should be very careful not to speak anything mundane or Shabbat. Because we're parallel to Hashem. Hashem doesn't speak anything mundane or Shabbat. So we too should be parallel and reflect the reality of Hashem. And then he adds Chulu, etc. 
And we were discussing at Alter Rebbe these three levels. The level, the biblical level, where only work is prohibited on Shabbat. And the rabbinical level, where you're not allowed to even speak about work on Shabbat. And the Hasidic level, the Hasid who didn't even want to think about work on Shabbat. These three levels represent the three different relationships that we have with Hashem. You have a basic level, a biblical level, which is a working relationship. God is our employer, we are His employees, and it comes on Shabbat, the employer closes the office, God creates the world, He shuts down the office, He doesn't work on Shabbat, He sends us all home, no work on Shabbat, it's a day of rest. And that's the first level of Shabbat. There are three levels of Shabbat. The first level of Shabbat is Friday night. What do we say in the prayer, the Friday night prayer? Why do we keep Shabbat? Because God created the world in six days and the seventh day he rested. Friday night we're resting. We're coming straight from the work week. Six days a week we work and on the seventh day we rest. So Friday night it's all about resting. The basic level of Shabbat. That's the biblical level. Then you have a deeper relationship with Hashem. It's called a parent-child relationship. Children parallel their parents. Yes, parents are above and children are below. Just like Hashem is above and we are below. But children are independent from their parents. They're independent entities. But nevertheless, children are their parents. They parallel their parents. They reflect their parents. They think like their parents. And that's why they inherit everything from their parents. Because children are their parents. They come from the very essence of their parents. And therefore, when you have that relationship, you're, you're in tune with your parents. It's not just a a cold relationship like an employer-employee relationship. It's personal. And the child is tuned in with the parent. And when the parent says one thing, the child gets it. And this is the whole foundation of the oral Torah. This is the whole foundation of the rabbinic law of the oral Torah. As the Talmud says, Hashem says, the words of the rabbis are sweeter to me than my own words. Because when you're just following the 613 mitzvot, it's very, it's very external in a way. But the rabbis, it's like a child relationship. And they understood every word in the Torah, they understood exactly what Hashem means and what He's hinting at. And from one verse in the Torah, they make a whole tractate. From the laws of Shabbat, from a few verses in the Torah, you have a whole tractate. Because they understood exactly what Hashem means. Hashem doesn't have to hint. So this is the parent-child relationship. And that's the second level of Shabbat. Shabbat morning. In the Shabbat morning prayer, we don't mention in the beginning God created the world six days and seven days rested. We, we mention that God took us out of Egypt. Moshe instituted Shabbat when the Jews were in slavery. He convinced Paro. To, to give him Shabbat. The Jewish people were given Shabbat even before the giving of the Torah, right before the giving of the Torah and Morah. What was the relationship of the Jewish people? What does God say? He says, let my, let my people go. He says, the Jewish people are my children. The giving of the Torah, the exodus from Egypt, God redeemed us from Egypt because we were His children and He loved us unconditionally and He came into Egypt and yanked us out of Egypt. That's why the Seder, the whole Seder, the whole Pesach is based on the children, the four children, the fourth, because that's what the exodus was all about. It was a parent-child relationship. So this elevates the Shabbat to a whole different level. It's not just technical, mechanical. It's personal. 
God is taking us out of Egypt. And that's what Shabbat means on a deeper level. That God is taking us out of the mundane. He's taking us out of the weekday. And He's giving us a Shabbat, a day to refresh, to rejuvenate, to reconnect, to refocus and recenter ourselves. This is a soulful day. This is the source of the rabbinic mitzvah. That's why the Shabbat was elevated. The rabbis elevated the Shabbat. It's not enough not that we refrain from doing work on Shabbat, but a Jew refrains from even speaking about work on Shabbat and from speaking excessively about, about work. And that's what it means. We parallel Hashem. We in this world, we the Jewish people, we are in this world, flesh and blood in this world, but yet we reflect Hashem. We parallel Hashem. But then there's a third level. And that is a marriage. A relationship between husband and wife. That's the ultimate relationship. That's even beyond parent-child relationship. That's when Hashem chose us at Sinai. That's choice. That happened at Sinai. That's the ultimate. The husband and wife relationship, they become inseparable, like two half-souls. They complete each other. They're in tune with each other. They anticipate the needs of each other. They don't even have to say, they don't have to hint anything. You already know what your spouse wants. And this is the foundation of a minig Yisrael, a Jewish custom. Jewish customs are not even mentioned or even hinted at in the the Talmud, in the Torah. But Jews just know instinctively. You just know that this this is what you do. It doesn't have to say to dance on Simcha's Torah. Does it have to say? Does the Talmud have to tell us you have to dance? You dance in some Torah when you finish the Torah? It goes without saying. Because we know what Hashem wants. And this is the ultimate level of Shabbat. Shalashudas, Mincha. What do we speak about Mincha? Look into the prayer of Mincha. We talk about the Shabbos of the future. Ata Echad, when God is one, His name will be one. That's Mashiach. That's the ultimate, the marriage of the Jewish people and Hashem. And this is hinted at the chulu, etc. There's a deeper way of keeping Shabbat, and not only you don't speak about Shabbat, you don't speak about work on Shabbat, you don't even think about anything mundane in Shabbat, which is the story in the Talmud of the Chassid. And this is the last word of the Tanya. In a sense, this really gets to the whole essence of Chassidus, the revolution of the Baal Shem Tov, the revolution of the Tanya, and um, the whole innovation of Hasidus. You have the revealed part of the Torah. Then you have the Kabbalah. And then you have Hasidus. What's the difference between the three? The revealed part of the Torah is where everything is spelled out. The Halacha, the Talmud, everything is delineated. Everything is clearly spelled out. The do's, the don'ts, the why's. Then you have the Kabbalah. Kabbalah is like the hint. In the entire Torah, you'll only find God's seven names. You know, the God's personal name, and Elohim, and Kael, and Shakai, and Tzavakas, etc. The infinite light is never once mentioned in the Torah. But it's hinted at in the Torah. So the seven names are like God's the part of God that we can speak of. God is called on his actions. When God acts kindly, we call him Kale. When he acts strong, we call him Elohim. 
based on this different way God expresses Himself and reveals Himself, you have all these names of Hashem throughout the Tanakh. But the infinite light, it's not clearly spelled out in the Torah. And that's what the whole Kabbalah is based on. But it's hinted at in the Torah. Everything in the Torah hints to the infinite light, which all the names derive and come from the infinite light. So this is like the parent-child relationship where the Kabbalah is able to tune in and go into the depth of the Torah, see the inner depth, the inner light of the Torah, which is not clearly spelled out. It's mystical, it's hidden, but it's really all there if you know how to read it. If you're tuned in, if you're living in a parallel universe, if we, our whole life is trying, Ladafka by trying to reflect Hashem and to be a life that's parallel to Hashem, then you sense all of these, this inner light and you sense the inner, deeper, mystical meaning behind every mitzvah and behind everything in the Torah. This is the whole basis of Kabbalah. But then you have Hasidus. Hasidus is the very core and essence. It's not spelled out and it's not even hinted at. But it's really the essence. It doesn't say anywhere in the Torah that a Jew should care. It says in the Torah, do this, don't do this. 613 obligations, 248 positive, active mitzvahs, 365 prohibitions. But there are certain things that are not spelled out, don't have to be spelled out, because this is the essence. Why am I doing all 613 mitzvahs? What's this all about? It's only because I'm married to God, I'm married to Hashem, I have this relationship. That's why I care, and that's why I'm doing all these mitzvahs. Otherwise, what am I doing? What, what is this all about? Just to go through the motions and to do the mitzvah mechanically and technically and filling everything down to the T, crossing every T and dotting every I. Yes, technically I did everything correct, but what's it all about? This is the essence. This goes without saying. It's like seeing the forest from the tree. So Hasidus gets to the core and essence of everything. Every mitzvah, everything in the Torah. And once you understand the essence, once you see the essence and you connect with it, then everything falls into place. The Kabbalah falls into place. The Talmud falls into place. The Halacha falls into place. That's all aspects of the very core and essence, which is the Hasidus. And... We discussed on Yitzhak Kislev, but I wanted to elaborate a little more. This also explains, if you want to understand the driving force behind Chabad, behind the Rebbe and all the Shluchim, his representatives, his personal representatives, is that biblically we have a mitzvah, love your fellow Jew like yourself. But it doesn't say anywhere that it means... You have to leave your family behind, leave your community, take your children to a community, a far-flung community, and raise your children there with all the challenges just because I should be there for my fellow Jew. There's no such obligation. Not only is there no such obligation, it's not hinted anywhere. In 3,800 years, you look in any Jewish published book, Weird. There's no, there's no hint that this is what a Jew is obligated to do. 
On the contrary, you may question it. What right do you have to deprive your own children? You have a biblical obligation on Pesach to educate your children. It's a biblical obligation to teach your children. And yet, most luchim, their children never had a private say there in their life. <laughs> because they grew up with public sedarim, including uh, our children. <laughs> what right do you have to... There's a biblical obligation to sit and teach your children. Where does it say in the Torah that you're obligated to run two public sedarim and But if your relationship with Hashem is, it's like a marriage then it doesn't have to say, and Hashem doesn't even have to hint. We know that this is exactly what Hashem wants. It's exactly what He expects. And it's exactly what He needs at this moment in time in Jewish history. Because why was the temple destroyed? Because of causeless hatred. What's the answer? What's the antidote? The opposite. Causeless love. And that's exactly what Hashem wants and needs at this time. But this also gets, you take it a step further. Maybe you heard the story, the famous story, when the Alter Rebbe was a student of Rabbi Dov Ber, the Maggid of Mizrich. Um, one of the colleagues of Rabbi Dov Ber, one of the senior students of the Baal Shem Tov, his name was Rabbi Pinchas from the town of Karetz. He was a very, very holy Jew, very special Jew. And he came to Rabbi Dov Ber and he noticed a page of Hasidic teachings on the floor. And he was very, very upset. As it is, he opposed Rabbi Dovber's approach of teaching, communicating Hasidut and expounding on Hasidut. He felt that it's something that should be treasured. It's something that should be, it's precious. It's not for everyone. You have to be very careful, very discriminating who you teach. Just like in general, the Kabbalah, for thousands of years, they were very discriminate who they would teach Kabbalah. It wasn't for everyone. And he was very upset. Now, when Rabbi, when Rabbi Pinchas of Karetz is upset, you better watch out. Because it can hurt you, physically. There was a big tumult in heaven, and there was a big accusation against Rabbi Dovber. Rabbi Pinchas Karetz was angry. A righteous anger. How dear, this, this pages of Hasidus is on the floor. And Rabbi, Rabbi Dov Ber, the Magad of Mizrich, was in physical danger. Because in heaven, there was this heavy accusation against him. And the Alter Rebbe came to the rescue. The Alter Rebbe felt this. So he comes over to Rabbi Pinchas of Kari. He says, let me tell you a parable. I'll give you a parable. He says, the king had one ear, the prince. And the ear became deathly ill. And they tried to cure the prince the future ear, nothing worked. They brought in the best doctors, nothing worked. Finally, they brought in the top doctor in the world. And they call, call him in, and he examines the prince, and he tells the king, I'm sorry to tell you that your son is so far gone. There's only one thing, one thing that may possibly work. No guarantees. And that is, if we were to take the crown jewel from your crown. Take it and, and grind it down and mix it with water and give it to your son if we are successful. At that time, this prince was so parched. He was so sick. They weren't even certain that it would even help, that 
they would even be able to get any, any drop into his mouth. But if we do succeed in getting one little drop into your son's mouth, that's the only thing that can save him. So what do you think the, the king decided to do? He says, what do I need a crown for? If I have no son, if I have no ear, if my prince is going to die, who needs the crown and who needs the crown jewel? So he immediately ordered they should take the crown jewel and it's all worthwhile. By the time they finished grinding the crown jewel, the prince was so sick, they weren't even sure they'll succeed in getting even a drop in. But it's all worthwhile. Let it all go to waste. Maybe one drop will enter into the mouth and will revive us. Rabbi Pinchas heard this parable. He understood exactly. He said, thank you. Bravo. And he was no longer angry, no longer upset. He understood what Rabbi Dover was trying to accomplish. And this, it's only if you're so tuned in with Hashem, if you have a relationship with Hashem. Because here the question was even greater. It's one thing to do something when there's no hint. But it doesn't say anywhere that you shouldn't do it. Here with the Kabbalah, it's taking it a step further. It states clearly there's prohibitions of studying Kabbalah and studying the inner parts of the Torah. You have to be so careful and you have to be worthy and you have to be meritorious. There's so many limitations, so many blocks, roadblocks that were placed through millennium. Even in the times of the Talmud, Rabbi Shimon Bayechoy's circle of the Zohar was a very close circle. Most of the Tanoim weren't even aware of the circle. Do you know that the Jewish people had a secret society? For thousands of years that the, most Jews, even leading rabbis, had no idea existed. A secret society of Kabbalists who had transmitted the, the tradition of the Kabbalah from generation to generation, all the way back to Moses. But it was only a secret, it was called a secret group. No one even knew of, of their existence. And here comes along the Baal Shem Tov, And with every passing generation, it gets more intense. Rabbi Dov Ber and starts communicating and revealing the secrets of the Torah. And the Alter Rebbe took it to the maximum. He published the Tanya. He articulated the deepest secrets of the Torah and made it available and accessible to each and every Jew. And you don't have to be so worthy and you don't have to be so great. Any Jew and every Jew, it's for every Jew. He said clearly, my intent in the Tanya wasn't for one particular group of Jews. It's meant for every single Jew. And the Rebbe actually published, to date, over 7,000 editions of the Tanya, literally in every city of the world. So Tanya is meant for every Jew. And in a broader sense, even for the whole entire world. So, there was tremendous opposition. Wait a minute. It says clearly, not so. It says clearly that there are limitations. You have to be careful. And that's why the Alter Rebbe sat in prison, because there was a tremendous accusation in heaven against him. Tremendous opposition and resistance. But again, if you're tuned in with Hashem, if you're so in tune with Hashem, if you're in tune with the essence of Hashem, then you know that this is exactly what Hashem wants of you. Because the son is in danger. The Jew is in danger of assimilating. The Jew is in danger of being completely lost. 3,800 years is about to get lost. All it takes is one Jew to intermarry and it's all over. That whole history is all gone. Where's the future? Where's the past? It's all gone in one moment. So it's, you're talking about life and death. 
the Jew could be lost forever. So this is what Hashem wants. When my son is in danger, you're worried about this prohibition and that prohibition and that limitation. Just take the crown jewel and grind it down and reveal it and publicize it and maybe, maybe one tiny drop of the Tanya, one tiny drop of Hasidus will actually enter, enter inside and will revive the Jew and reconnect the Jew, reconnect him to Hashem. And for that, it's all worthwhile. And in general, the Alter Rebbe took an activist approach. Where does it say in the Torah? Where is it even hinted at that you have to take an activist approach? We wait for Mashiach. That's how Jews always waited for Mashiach. You wait passively. We daven. We pray sincerely, wholeheartedly, and one day we're going to wake up, you're going to be shopping in the butcher shop, you're going to be in the gym, and all of a sudden you're going to hear, Mashiach is here. (laughs) But it's going to happen suddenly. Hashem will take care of business. He took us into exile. He'll take us out of exile. But where does it say that we have to roll up our sleeve and we have to become activists? Mashiach will come. What are we going to do all day when Mashiach comes? We're going to study (laughs) we're going to study Hasidus we're going to study godliness we're going to study the secrets of the Torah but Mashiach isn't here yet so the Alter Rebbe 200 years before Mashiach coming Alter Rebbe published the Tanya and said every Jew has to start learning Tanya imagine Mashiach is already here start learning Hasidus learn about godliness study godliness our life should be filled with the knowledge of Hashem where? where does it say? Mashiach will come Mashiach will collect every Jew around the world. But where does it say that it means that you have to go on shlichus, you have to send 5,000 shluchim, 5,000 chabad houses to collect one Jew at a time, one mitzvah at a time. It's God's job. Where does it say that we're obligated? I sit in my house and I do what I'm told. Where does it say that I have to take the initiative? That I have to become an activist, take the initiative, splat, scheme, think, how can I touch another Jew and how can I reach another Jew and how can I inspire another Jew and how can I connect with another Jew? Is that my role? Open up the code of Jewish law. Any version of the code of Jewish law. It doesn't say anywhere. It's not even hinted at. But again, it depends what kind of level of relationship you have with Hashem. If your whole Judaism is just a working relationship, yes, then sit home passively, wait, and one day Mashiach will knock on your door and then... But if your relationship is alive, if it's a core, essential relationship, if it's a marriage, and that's the whole essence of the Tanya, that Judaism is very, very near to us because we have this marriage, then you roll up your sleeve. You know that this is what Hashem wants. He doesn't have to say, He doesn't have to tell you, He doesn't have to command you, and He can't command you. It goes without saying. I care, and I care about Hashem, and I love Hashem, and this is what Hashem needs at this moment, this is what Hashem wants, and I take an activist position, and I take, an, uh, take the initiative, and I'll do whatever I can to fast forward, facilitate, to reach another Jew, to fill my life and fill the world around me with the knowledge of Hashem. And the Rebbe finishes, Chulu, etc. The Rebbe once said that Chulu means etc., to be continued. You think you just finished Tanya. You think you just studied 14 years. And you studied word for word and line by line. And then at the best to your ability in depth. 
Now the Rebbe says, you're starting all over again. It's interesting, the Tanya starts with a tough, and the last letter is Aleph. The first part of the Tanya also ends with an Aleph. So Hasidim used to say, before you start learning the Tanya, you feel like a tough, I'm perfect, I'm finished, I'm ready. By the time you're done finishing the Tanya, you realize, I have to go back to Aleph. I have to start, start all over again. The, uh, the third Lubavitcher Rebbe, the Tzemach Tzedek, he was uh, 10 years old, the first Yutas Kislev, the first uh, anniversary when Alter Rebbe was released from prison. So he comes to the show, and he, you know, he patched on the bima, like it was Simchas Torah. He says, Atta Haresa, and he started giving out the verses of Atta Haresa to everyone in the crowd. And then he went hakafis with the Tanya. You know, the Tanya is the Bible of Hasidus. It's the written Torah of Hasidus. And Alter Rebbe, when he heard about it, was very pleased. And he called him in and he blessed him that you should be able to develop the oral Torah on the written Torah of the Tanya. The Rebbe's father, when the Rebbe's father was in, in exile, Everything was taken away from him. First he was in prison, then he was in exile, and that shortened his life. He became sick. And he had nothing with him. So on Simcha's Torah, what did he dance with? He danced with the Tanya. <laughs> so that's what he danced with. This was, this was his Simcha's Torah. He danced all night and all day with the Tanya. The Tzemach Tzedek said, if people knew the power of the Tanya, he says, with the Tanya, we can not only change our own lives and change everyone around us, and not only bring blessings, not only spiritual blessings, material blessings, but the Tanya is what's going to prepare ourselves and the whole world for the coming of Mashiach. Um, I just want to give a very special thank you to... Uh, Chayn Harpaz, who, uh, yes. this, this was uh, definitely a match made in heaven. Hashem, Hashem brought us together, and uh, it was his initiative, talking about taking initiative and doing something that really mattered and made, made a difference in tens of thousands of people's lives from a sheer here in the Chabad House and started in Benjamin Arye's Chabad House in 203, East 82nd. A special thank you to Benjamin, who also uh, sponsored a whole bunch of our Tanyas in the first part of the Tanya. You'll see, you'll see the sponsorship. And thank you to all the sponsors that made it possible, Joe and Debbie Arano, and to um, Isaac Yitzchak, to take from a class that's the class and to to make it available and accessible and once it's recorded and to do it in such a professional way and it's really a labor of love you know it's really truly a labor of love and really put his neshama into it and um, 
that Torah should be the, the, on a very high level, like on a caliber. The, the sound is professional and it's a pleasure to listen to. Um, so it's a tremendous chus. You know, you did it in schus of your father. It should be a tremendous, tremendous continued schus. You know, the Rebbe would say, whenever someone finished something, the Rebbe would say, you're just getting warmed up. <laughs> now that you've proved to yourself that you're able to do this, so come on, now you can do much more. But uh, a special thank you to all um, our regular Tanya class participants. Talmud says, from my students, I learn more than anyone. Sure, the, <laughs> the questions and the challenges and, you know, stump the really uh, made you go back and really, you truly have to understand it. You know, when you learn for yourself, you think you understand it. But when you have to explain it, if you don't understand something, you can't explain it. So a really tremendous thank you. Thank the Rebbe for giving us this tremendous opportunity. Every Chabad house is really a Tanya house. We have to thank, thank Hashem for reaching this moment. Um, I know when we started, Chaim thought this would be uh, a year or two. <laughs> but like, I, like all things Jewish, it took a little longer. But uh, say Baruch, Shechiyonu, Vikimonu, Vigiyonu, Lezmanazel, Chaim, Chaim, Mazel If anyone would like to take this opportunity, anyone who would like to shear, to inspire, it's really an opportunity to inspire someone else, whoever's listening, if you'd like to share a very short, brief, how Tanya touched you in a very special way, and, and um, words from the heart that could inspire someone listening. We know that this is listened to in over 90 countries, so you never know who, what you say can really touch them, and they can relate to and connect with. So, um, we're going to invite whoever would like to come up here, take the seat, and very short and sweet, anyway, if you'd like to share something personal about Tanya. Baruch Hashem, when we started, it was, uh, I, I didn't know anything about the Tanya. I just happened to, by a chance encounter, to meet the Rebbe and uh, actually on Yom Kippur, 2004, and uh, got exposed to it. And I remember back then when I was uh, sharing with some friends, I said, we're going to do something about Tanya. They thought I'm talking about some girl or something. <laughs> I had no idea. And uh, it was just the beginning of the Internet. So obviously if you would put Tanya in, all kind of Tanyas will come up. Nothing to do with our uh, project. But Baruch Hashem, now when, uh, when you go on the Internet and also when you travel around, you see it's everywhere. So... Um, you know, we're just a small part in a project that the Rebbe started in the 50s. Long story, but we are the third generation on this project, and we're preparing it for the next one. So, um, um, whoever wants to be part, you know, here in the room or wherever you are in the world and wants to come and take it over and keep developing it, please do. And... Um, just want to thank the rabbi for uh, really influencing my life in a very uh, special way. Uh, I travel long, long road to get to where I'm at, um, uh, physically, mentally, emotionally, uh, socially, etc. Um, 
So uh, I just want to say thank you. You know, I, I, I really, I think that I always wanted to, to be exposed to something like that. And I, I, I looked around and traveled around. I couldn't find anything that was satisfying. And then first time I, I heard it, Tanya, um, I just knew that I have, I have no idea what it is, but I just knew that this is something for me. And uh, I guess uh, after 14 years, you can say that um, uh, the, the, the first uh, impression is, is, is the real one. So um, thank you. Thank you for everything. to everybody here. Um, I'm going to put on my jacket because uh, not only uh, is it a festive day, but it's a it's a special day. It's almost like a holiday, you know. Here, uh, thank you very much, Rabbi. That um, you know. Um, it's been a 14-year project for him. I mean, if you go on to tanyaclass.com, you'll see to what extent it's aged the rabbi, you know. In the early years, he had this nice black beard, a little more hair. <laughs> now he's got the gray beard and all of this. But uh, it's a sign of maturity. <laughs> Not that the rabbi wasn't mature uh, 14 years ago, but uh, it's a sign of maturity. And I've been here about six years uh, uh, learning this. And, um, you know, I was a neophyte. Uh, all right. Uh, I, you know, I had been going to modern Orthodox synagogues, and I certainly... Uh, was going to Minyan every day and all of this, but this was like a new, um, a, a new approach, you know? And I felt like, um, you know, I was an infant, uh, you know, in the beginning. And it's taken quite a lot of time for this to sink in, you know? You learn uh, chapter one where, uh, you know, it talks about, uh, you know, we have a godly soul, um, and, uh, you know, somehow that's related to a bodily, body, soul, and, uh, you know, together uh, there's a battle between, um, you know, spirituality and, um, and soulfulness, and uh, it just keeps getting, uh, you know, more and more, uh, you know. Now we reach, uh, you know, a point where, you know, at first we're talking about um, what's the uh, most important thing uh, with regard to uh, Judaism. Most important is, um, you know, prayer. So, uh, you know, we focus on prayer and the, the Rebbe gives you in uh, one of the chapters how important prayer is. But then he says, wait a minute, it's not just prayer, it's Torah. And then, uh, you know, he starts talking about all the advantages of Torah and how powerful it is and, you know, how uh, it involves using your intellect and bina, understanding. And then, uh, but then he says, that's not the essence of it. There's still more. And it's to do, to do mitzvahs. And, um, you know, when you do mitzvahs, so then... Um, as the rabbi was speaking, it's an activist uh, kind of thing. 
it continues to be a transformation. It's unbelievable. You know, it's a transformation in the beginning. It's a transformation in the middle. It's a transformation as an adult. And then it, you know, it still becomes a transformation. It's just an amazing thing uh, that we have this, uh, uh, you know, to uh, tune into. And I've made uh, many friends over these years, you know, with Jeff and uh, Hashi and uh, Jay and, uh, you know, Jeff. And um, it's just an amazing thing, uh, you know, to think that uh, we, we're friends and yet we can talk about things on a high level. You know, I certainly have plenty of friends to call up and talk about the football and, you know, how we're disappointed in the Giants and... You know, and and the Knicks especially were very disappointed in. But here, you know, you talk about, um, you know, things that are really important. And it just keeps getting, uh, you know, better and better. The bottom line is I really um, appreciate this, um, as the rabbi says, this jewel. And we want to open it up to more people. Uh, and, it, and the word is getting out. And it's just an amazing thing to have the place here on the Upper East Side that we can come and tap into. So thank you. I was thinking today that the kind of work that went into the preparation that, that the rabbi did on Tanya, 14 years, you can imagine all those hours and hours of preparation and the class time, Tuesday night was, was always Tanya for me, the last 14 years. And even before then, before it was being taped and audioed, we had three years, and the rabbi went back with the women, with Donna and her friends, and how many years was that? So we're talking 25 years or so, a dedicated person. We thank the rabbi for everything. Um... My first, my first day, first started at uh, the Chabad house, and the first thing I did was take the class in Tanya. And um, in the secular world, I studied 21 years in school, and all you have is questions. You never get answers. And you certainly don't get truths. And you're always asking yourself, what's the purpose of my life? So I came to the first Tanya class, and I didn't understand a thing, except that it was MS. And that conclusion led me to stay 17 years. So if you're open to truth, then it's, it's a great place to start your search and to end your search, probably. So I want to thank you. I had no idea. I never heard about Tanya. Then somehow, Rabbi Baumgarten opens the book and says, read this line. First line I read was just a years ago, few few years ago. And I said, wait a minute, where did this come from? It's the first sentence telling you literally what is happening in your life from the beginning to the end. All the middle parts are be good. Do the right thing. And appreciate Hakadosh Baruch Hu. I'm grateful to my Rabbi for opening my eyes to my life, Rabbit, for everything that I know you've done 
for everyone on the Upper East Side for your husband to give him the ability to everything to do everything here for every one of us to explain to me what the meaning of my life is so that I can teach that to my children hopefully for them to carry it on the greatness of life is everything that Tanya teaches us in a simple way. Thank you, Rabbi. Rabbi uh, called me a professor, and I, I do teach at, I'm a professor at Columbia University, and professors are notorious for speaking too much. I'll try and keep it very short tonight. Um, I don't feel I have a right to speak much. I, I'm a real novice in Tanya, um, maybe an expert in decision-making and behavioral economics, which is my field. And one of the things we learn there is that um, when we lose something, that's when we really, when we fear to lose something, we really appreciate it. Nobody likes to lose. Um, and one thought that is permeating my um, egocentrical mind uh, in the last uh, 20 minutes is, oops, 14 years are over, what, what's going to happen now? I mean, will we have, how do we get more, now, more classes? Um, so I'm really actually very anxious about that, but I <laughs> hope there'll be uh, some, uh, some solution to that. Um, plagiarism, heaven forbid, c- copying somebody else's uh, writings or thoughts is a very severe um, um, infringement. or it's, ver- it's very bad, particularly in scientific or academic research. It's a... Uh, it's awful when it happens. It's rare and awful when it happens. I certainly um, would never ever want to engage in anything close to plagiarism, you know, copying someone else's ideas. It defeats the, the purpose. Why am I raising this uh, grim notion of plagiarism? Um, I've been teaching at Columbia now for almost 20 years, or maybe 20 years. This year, I taught um, an undergraduate course that I've taught several times before. It's about strategy and marketing and decision-making and economics and psychology. It's not supposed to be about Tanya. (laughs) (laughs) I never mentioned the word Tanya in that class once this year. It's my my bad. (laughs) But each class was three hours. And although I am... I am a real novice, the rabbi knows, obviously I'm a novice in Tanya, I've not taken enough classes, I've taken few classes. But what's amazing is that those very few classes that I've taken have impacted me and my thinking and my students in an unbelievable way. I say this with humility, I know there's a risk of me being arrogant now to suggest that I've impacted my students or to try and explain that. But this year, something was very different in that class. I would start every class without planning, without preparing, with 30 minutes of just talking to them, not about business or marketing or philosophy or or, or, um, economics or decision making, but just about what came out of my heart. 
And it was Tanya. <laughs> the little that I know and what I've learned from you. I don't even know what part of it was Tanya and what part of it is what I've heard from you, what I've learned from you in, in, in general and other, in, in the shul. But I would start like that for half an hour. And that's why I talked about plagiarism, because I, I don't mean to have, I didn't mean to copy, I didn't give any references, I didn't give any due credit to Tanya or to Rabbi Kraziatsky, but that's, that's what I would talk for half an hour, 40 minutes, just what came out of my heart. And I told your son, Menachem Mendel, today in the, in the beginning of, uh, of the class, that, that um, I realized that Chabad, that Chochmah Binadat, that that is, is actually to experience it. It's not enough to be wise and to have the knowledge or learn from the books, which is very important, but you also need to have the dot to experience. And some things in my life, better and worse, in the last two years combined with Tanya allowed me to experience and then convey that to my students. So I promise I'll be short. I'm already not keeping that promise, I think. Um, I'll conclude and say I was very worried throughout the semester. Is what I'm saying making sense to them? Are they going to say, this guy's just talking nonsense. You know, we came to learn about business and strategy and he's talking about... And, the, and here's where I might... I hope I'm not, um, not being arrogant. Um, the reaction, the sense I got from, from the students this year, the feedback that I got from them afterwards, I've never had that in 20 years of teaching at Columbia never had it given talks or research presentations or talking with companies or, or universities all over the world or other students. Never had something like it. And they, they, they felt that they were learning from it, that they were touched by it. And I never told them that it was Tanya, actually. <laughs> That, that was what I, I was sharing with them. The, the little I know about Tanya, the very little that I know about Tanya, had, uh, I think, an impact on them, had a, a tremendous impact on me. So I'm, I'm very grateful um, also to you, um, like everyone else here. Thank you. This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.